1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Nobuko Yamasaki. She is Associate Professor of Japanese and of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Lehigh University. Today, we will be discussing her newly published book, Prostitutes, Hostesses, and Actresses at the Edge of the Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History, published in New York by Routledge, 2021. Nabuko, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
2: Thank you so much, Ari, for having me today at this very difficult time You know, to talk about war and all these issues. <laughs> so I feel so honored to be invited. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
2: Um, Actually, this is an ongoing issue, you know, at the time we are living right now. So where shall I start? I was born in Japan and grew up in Japan most of my life. But in the meantime, um, I had an opportunity to stay in Australia and live in Australia and study for a year and also I lived in um, just stayed studied in Russia for a few months several times um but mostly I grew up in Japan and the formative events um so growing up I always felt I was living in a certain historical ambience and I was constantly thinking um we have to historicize this present moment in order to understand what's going on. Because each emotion has a history. So I was constantly thinking about historicizing the emotions that we face today. The reason why is um, this is a very sad story to share. Um, Under the Japanese empire, um, there was a censorship, which my book deals with. And then two of my family members were a victim of that. Um, so one is my mother's side of family, Ishitate Kotoe. He was a Marxist thinker, an activist leader, and he was put into prison and then killed and died. Um, under the Chiyang-Ijiho, notorious Chiang Ijiho, it is translated as peace preservation law, but what was really happening was basically they were um, the, the law was banning the socialist um, thinking, or more anti-capitalist thinking mode of thought. And then they were arresting the thinkers and philosophers. And so unfortunately, you know, my family has that kind of family member. And on the other hand, also my father's side has um that kind of individual as well. His name is Okunomiya Kenshi. And Okunomiya is my father's side of last name. Um, so he was uh, also a philosopher, a thinker. He was more like a liberal socialist thinker. And um, he was also arrested um, in Taiyaku Jiken and then died and murdered in prison along with other philosophers such as Kotoku Shusui. So this is now um how do you say really silenced part of history the reason why you know they were arrested was really random but um but basically they were what they were they were considered to be a menace menace for the Japanese empire because they were critiquing the Japanese empire so I grew up in such ambience it's not but it's not that you know my family members are constantly talking about them rather these memories um, showed up as fragment like incoherent manner time to time but that was the um, ambience i grew up and also um my grandfather i was very close with um, um he was a trained law he went to uh, Tokyo Imperial, current Tokyo University, but at that time he was called Tokyo Imperial University, and he was trained by Minobe Tatsukichi. Minobe Tatsukichi was also kind of basically known for Tenno um lost his position um, being critiqued for critiquing the national polity, kokutai, insulting the national polity, national essence. So My grandfather witnessed it, the violence exercised by the Japanese Empire. And at the same time, when he was in high school, um, he formed a book club reading group. And he was also censored by the police. And he was taken by the police when he was in high school. And then so he had a body to form the reading group book club and his body. He went his body went to his friend went to current Kyoto University, at that time Kyoto Imperial University, and he got involved into so-called Takigawa Jiken, and he was arrested and killed in prison. So um, I grew up in such ambience, and of course, so I was interested in silenced part of history. And um so these are the events, some events <laughs> that formed me who I am. To do the research, what I do, so I always interested in the history silenced part that's far away from the official historiography, and I was con- I was interested in how to read silence, how to read margins, and and I found um, it is very useful to study like trauma theories and affect theories to read those. So these are. Um, the experiences I had to form who I am. And also recently as a recent event, my daughter now um, goes to a college and she found uh, a whole collection written by Okunomiya Kenshi, a liberal thinker um, at the library she goes to, it's a Cornell university's library, East Asian collections they have. And she sent me a screenshot to me and say, mom, read this. And he was about how Okunomiya Kenshi was critiquing the Japanese empire at that time. And I got it, okay, yeah, he was a dangerous figure against the empire. That's a very recent um, event took place. So it's ongoing. And also in the current ongoing wars on this globe uh, makes me rethink and think who I am as a scholar too. But thank you for asking such a big, important question.
1: How is this book structured?
2: Oh, that's an important question, too. So the book titled Prostitute Hostesses and Actresses at the Edge of the Japanese Empire Fragmenting History. So this already indicates I'm not reading the um, I'm challenging the grand narratives written by men in power, and I'm challenging the historiography that is shown like an ear, an event, an ear, an event, in an ear, an event. And always there is a question, who wrote this? Who created all this historiography? So my book starts from the intervention into such historical discourses, such large narratives. And then so the chapter one starts with um, Nakajima Atsushi. So the reason why I brought in Nakajima Atsushi at the beginning is, um, as it's indicated uh, in italics, you know, little subtitles. All these small themes um, keep coming up in different forms throughout the, the book, um, such as um, intervening in empire, the other as individual, or the hierarchy is disrupted, or a linguistic failure. And a self consciousness of a child, a prostitute protest, self contradict uh, justice's self contradictions, in which I um, critique, uh predict about the justice, what the justice is that uh, trying to foreground its contingency, and also finally eloquent silences. Like all these themes keep coming up throughout the text, so I place this. Um, in the first chapter. And also, you know, this uh, Nakajima Atsushi let the prostitute speak the silenced part of history by using his um rhetorical devices. I can talk about this more in detail later. And also kind of um, this project turned out to be more personal than I imagined. And uh, the Nakajima Atsushi himself um, he was born in Japan, but he grew up in uh, the colonial Korea when Japan occupied Korean Peninsula. So um, although as an elite, he ended up working for the empire, the Japanese empire, and he was creating the Japanese language textbook by the order of the Japanese empire for the natives in South Seas who didn't know how to read and write who are deemed as illiterate by the Japanese empire. Um, But he was constantly questioning the mission he was assigned by the Japanese empire. And I was trying to think why he was so critical. And and I noticed um, in his upbringing, growing up in the occupied Korea and his his work, his first work, really reveals um, such problems, how Koreans are living in everyday lives, how their everyday lives are permeated through and through by asymm- asymmetrical power dynamics between Japanese and Koreans, between men and women. Um, so by revealing Nakajima was critiquing the Japanese empire. And what I notice is, um, Nakajima Atsushi. You know, he is considered to be the like, safe writer. She was he was always employed by the Japanese language textbook, even today, throughout. Um, so there are as uh, second or third or fourth generations of Nakajima Atsushi reader because he's employed as a Japanese textbook. However, And also I'm trying to challenge that kind of canonical reading as well. And I presented a claim that in order to understand Nakajima Atsushi, you need to reread the canon through the lens of his colonial works. And the colonial work is the one I closely analyzed in um, in my book. And then this, So it's not that what I'm trying to claim is it's not that Um, Nakajima Atsushi. So what I'm trying to claim is it's not that there are genres within Nakajima's colonial works or canonical works. It's not that. What I'm trying to say is you need to reread the canon in in light of his colonial works, what is considered to be minor works. Because he's writing, I know he's writing about the same thing from the beginning till the end so this is a small example um so like he's like rhetoric word choice such as he brings in like a di- he brings in dialectics in his writings so he brings in the ideas and word choice and characters <clears throat> that are <clears throat> that appear opposing element but combine and shows the dynamics he does it and also he constantly writing about a figure that character that serves for the government but um he questions his own work and he does it from his early work till the end so what does it mean I was trying to answer um so the structure is, so Nakajima Atsushi's ethos lingers through, throughout the text. That's why it came in the first chapter. And the second chapter is about, uh, it's a uh, Rikoran, she's a very complex woman. It's hard, in, in a sense, she's very hard to pin down. She lifting in contradictions, lifting reality and fabric fabrications. And then, so she was a propaganda actress for the Japanese Empire. In many films, what she played was um a Chinese girl. At first, she held anti-Chinese sentiment, but she falls in love with the benevolent Japanese men. And then she transforms into a Chinese girl, Chinese women, who support the building of expansion of the Japanese Empire. Very dangerous. Um, but later on, she really regrets what she did, and she tried to i um, so later in her life, she became politician, and then she founded the uh, Grant Foundation to support um women who was a victim of the sexual violence, and then so they try to save. Um, help the former comfort women that served for the Japanese Empire, but at the same time, you know, there was an opposing voice raised from the former colonial subject. Like we can't accept money from Nigora. You know, she was a propaganda actress. Um, so I was trying to write about her contradictory life and. the uh, but possible ethical moment that might be emerging within herself, even though she appears very naive. And chapter chapter um, three, and oh, in chapter three, oh and also what, what is important, so Rikoran was born in so-called Manchukuo, the northeast of northeast China. So he was also... um under Japanese empire, Japanese empire created a puppet regime. So she was completely fluent in Chinese and Japanese. That's why she was able to perform such actress. Um, She was able to perform Chinese girls in her films. And she was lying in public that she was Chinese even though she was Japanese. Um, and I can talk about it later too. So actually, this was later on, she was actually detained right after she was detained. It was nanking, not in prison itself, um, right after the World War II, because she was um considered to be a Chinese that worked for the Japanese Empire. That was a crime. So, and her Chinese was that great. Great means that she was that fluent, you know. Even the authorities, you know, be get confused at the way that whether she was ju- uh, thinking she was Chinese. And but in the end, um, her life was saved by her childhood best friend, she was a Jewish girl. I'm sorry, she was a Jewish girl because you know, there were a lot of um Jewish people living in the Manch- uh, Manchukuo because they escaped from pogrom so kind so one of her best friend was such jewish girl and she was the one that obtained the koseki family registry revealing she is japanese not chinese and then she saved her life Rikoran's life so, so in hayashi kyoko in a chapter three um so she is known as a bomb writer and atomic bomb writer. Because she was born in Nagasaki, but right after she was born, her family moved to Shanghai. So she grew up in Shanghai. So she was also fluent in Chinese. Too. There are so many, um, uh, basically, you know, the, all the writers and creators I I dealt with in my book they are multilinguals. So Hayashi Kyoko grew up in Shanghai, and. So I was trying to foreground because she is analyzed a lot as an A bomb survivor writer. So I was trying to foreground her criticism against the Japanese nationalism against the Japanese nation state that lies at the heart of her work. That's through her interactions with a prostitute. That's what I was trying to do in chapter three, and then in chapter four, uh, four and five, um. These are about the diasporic Korean women, Yanji and Teresa Hyeoncha. So, you know, they didn't know each other and their life are completely different, but as a diasporic Korean woman, they share the same concerns for Koreans. And they are both born in the um, 1950s and they both died suddenly at, in their 30s. And it's so interesting, even though they didn't know each other, they share the same concerns for Koreans because they are living, still living the legacies of the colonialism, you know, Japan- colonized by the Japanese. And then so in their works, even so in analyzing them, the affect theories really useful um, to handle the generational trauma they are tackling with. So that's how my, so I was trying to put these diasporic Korean women into dialogue. So so this is how my book is structured. Yeah, structured. Thank you for asking a good question.
1: What message do you hope to convey to readers in this book?
2: Well, that's a great question. There are so many messages, but if I come up with one, what I want to say is I want to propose we need to embrace art, any art form that makes us uncomfortable. Because I think the art, good art, it can be literature, poetry, film. Um, It kind of creates rapture in the present moment. And then it kind of makes us stop in the present moment. And then it, it let us think, reflect the present moment and start to think about past, in a creative manner, critical manner. And then from there, we start to think about creative future, better future. So I was, you know, as as, as you can tell, um, all the works I dealt with are not comfortable works. It makes us really uncomfortable, especially make Japanese uncomfortable. But I was trying to dig into it because I want to think about better futures in a creative manner. And also the messages I want to convey is, um, I want leaders.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Um, I I, um, I was trying to show how to read silence or silenced voices or marginalized voices that fall away from official historiography. And that's what I did throughout the chapter. And I want my audiences to notice is how I did it.
1: How does your research advance our understanding of the experiences of sex workers in World War II?
2: Thank you for asking for great questions. That's really core part of my work. Um, the reason why I paid attention to sex workers is, you know, their histories are not really narrated, but they were definitely there and they played crucial roles under the Japanese empire and each chapter talk talks about the role of sex workers but they are very different so let me talk each chapter so in Nakajimatsu's chapter uh, Nakajimatsu foreground a Korean prostitute so as I mentioned earlier a little bit you know Nakajimatsu was writing under censorship and then so this And Nakajima Atsushi cunningly said, astutely said this work um, during the time of the Great Kanto earthquake took place. And what happened after the Great Kanto earthquake was there was a rumor that Koreans are trying to revolt against Japanese. And they were trying to kill Japanese by poisoning drinking water. So what happened was a Korean massacre and genocide, but it was prohibited. It was banned to speak about it and the, the, the people knew it. So Nakajima she knew it. So she let the Korean prostitute to speak about it. Um, so Nakajimachi is taking a risk in writing about this piece, um, to negotiating with the censorship and power, but she doesn't let the prostitute say it so clearly, but implicitly, but explicitly stated it, like um, this is how it done. So so Korean this Korean prostitute believe her husband is working in Japan and he died um, during the Kanto earthquake. But one of his clients says, what, so you didn't know what really happened to Koreans after the great Kanto earthquake? And then there is a silence and dots and dashes and then Nakajima's delineate, how she responded to one of her client message. So she cannot write many Koreans are massacred in the genocide. But, and if you know how power dynamics taking place, you can quickly get it. Now we know there was the genocide took place. So like, so, you know, the Korean prostitute became so, um how do you say, gone crazy. Um, started to act like a lunatic and screaming around and saying what happened to Koreans after the massacre. And then because of the act, the prostitute was arrested, arrested by other Koreans, ironically, because the policeman was working for the Japanese empire. What is always considered to be justice at that time was to work for the Japanese empire. So in doing so, I was also trying to reveal the contingency of the justice system by the Korean prostitute, nanda omae datte omae datte, Korean Chosenjin no kuse So she uses the term Chosenjin no kuse ni, means that's a despite being of Korean. But at the same time, this rhetoric um, is used when somebody Act in a way that counters the shared value, so it's a, the implication is a blame. So Korean p- prostitute blames the Korean policeman that arrested her. So that's um. So Nakajima uses employs uses um delineates this Korean prostitute to reveal the violence of the Japanese Empire exercised against Koreans at that time genocide. And the next chapter, uh, was uh, so yes, um, uh, Rikoran. so Rikoran, So in this particular chapter, I didn't talk much about prostitute. Rather, I did it, um, in appendix, because I translated Rikoran's um speech, uh, not the speech, the statement when she established, um a fund to support former comfort women and like how her act was opposed by former comfort women. And she was really critiqued because she was a propaganda actress. Um, So it's very easy to critique her as being so naive, but like she was trying to do what she could do in a position she was assigned. So, um, and, she really lived a life of contradictions. She really cried. She apologized so many times. So um you say she so after the World War II, she accepted a responsibility assigned on to her and tried to work for people, those who those whose life were violated by the Japanese Empire. But I also agree to some degree she was a little naive. And in the next chapter, it's Hayashi Kyoko. So, um, Hayashi Kyoko, um, you know, as I said, you know, she grew up in the um Japanese settlement in Shanghai. And then, so in this chapter, I was trying to foreclose, uh, not the foreclose, foreground a prostitute figure called Okio-san. She was a Japanese prostitute serving for anyone. Living in Shanghai, regardless of race, class, gender. And at that time, you know, there were, in Hayashi Kyoko doesn't clearly state it, but she write about uh, the Japanese hostesses that are also serving sex for the Japanese um client um, under the guise of ryote, restaurant, serving for the Japanese armies, and Japanese navies at that time. But the Okio-san was, but they were kind of protect, the Japanese hostesses, so they were protected in a way under the Japanese empire, by the Japanese empire. However, Okio-san was not even in the system. She was living with other uh, Russian prostitute in Shanghai and serving for um even Chinese um, coolies that were despised at that time. And so Okio-san's body was violating both racial, national, class boundaries at that time. So she was another within. She was unwanted other within. So she was really despised by the Japanese community in Shanghai. But um, Okio-san was a, a, a real figure. Hayashi Kyoko developed friendship and then, so she is a figure that falls away from the ethos of the Japanese empire. And she was not, worth, uh, she was not worthy um, to represent the ethos of the Japanese empire. Because at that time, there was a term, a notion called ryosai kenbo. Uh, that's the way women should live. Ryosai means um, good wives. Kenbo means wise mothers. Good wives, wise, 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 wise mothers. Was the ideal way to live Japanese women's life. Okiyo-san didn't fit, and Hayashi Kyoko's mother fit. Um. So Hayashi Kyoko didn't really listen to what her mother was teaching, and then kind of rebelled. Um. And so Hayashi, uh, so the, so that leads to. So the interactions with um, the prostitute Okiyo-san leads to uh, really reveals the Hayashi Kyoko's criticism against the nation state, violence conducted by the nation state, because Okiyo-san is a figure needed for exclusion for Japanese empire to form the totality of the Japanese nationality, nationhood, sense of belonging, because she didn't belong. And also, so later on, and Hayashi Kyoko became a victim of atomic bombing in Nagasaki. So what I noticed is, you know, the sense, critical sense against the Japanese Empire always lied at the heart of Hayashi Kyoko's work. and she, so that's something I was trying to reveal, and it was very obvious once we look into her, Friendship she developed with the Japanese street prostitute that really existed. Okay, so in chapter four, um, I analyzed about a prostitute figure. So this is, um, so this chapter, uh, this is about, uh, so this chapter focused on Yanji. She's a Zainichi Korean women writer. So Zainichi Korean, she was born in Japan, grew up in Japan. Her first language is Japanese. Um. However, um, um, she was ethnically Korean. Okay, so in one of her work, important work, Koku, she focuses on a prostitute, Zainichi Korean prostitute. Um. However, she's going by Japanese. There was a moment she reveals she is Zainichi Korean because a lot of Zainichi Koreans hide the fact that they are ethnically korean for fear of the discrimination against koreans so anyway there is a zainish korean prostitute and so she, she um so she works um as a hostess but takes client as a prostitute and at one moment and she runs around the tokyo at OBGYN asking for her uterus to be removed. She calls it her seijin, seijin Shiki. Her own Seijin Shiki is a ritual, Um, a day Um, that means a coming-of-age ceremony. It's one of the ce- ce- uh, ceremonies enter into um the adulthood in japan it's marked in the calendar so it's not just uh one day on the calendar it's a memory making and history making day to become and uh to become a japanese nationals member of the japanese nation state so usually um um many Japanese women wear kimono and attend the ceremony. Um, some Koreans started to wear the Korean ethnic dresses too, but usually, the majority of them wear Japanese kimono because they enter into the Japanese nationhood. But this Zainich Korean prostitute refuses to do that, boycott their ceremony, stating, my ceremony is to remove this uterus. But the many um Japanese OBGYN, OBGYN and doctors decline, are you okay? Why do you even do that? And they don't understand, you know, the symbolic meaning for her to remove her uterus. Because in doing so, she was trying to um, boycott the this Japanese memory making ceremony. And also at the same time, she was trying to boycott uh, reproducing the offsprings that could be a, as a form of resistance against the Japanese nation state. And I'm talking in a very simple way, but I analyzed very um, in a detailed manner in my chapter. And and also she was raped. Um when she was living with um, Japanese stepbrothers when she was younger and she had an abortion. She was raped by both of them. So by foreclosing the possibility of reproducing the ethnically Korean offsprings, she was trying to remove herself from the circulation of the violence that zainichi koreans face in japanese society and so it's a form of resistance for her and then so so this uh, anne's experiences are narrated by her step sister japanese stepsister so after her tragic death the japanese stepsister start to question her plan to attend the Seijin Shiki ceremony to become, to enter the, for the memory making for the Japanese nation state. And even though she was going to receive a kimono to wear for the Seijin Shiki ceremony, she boycotted in doing so. And I was trying to say, so in a sense, by trying to, in the process of understanding the agony the pain her Korean Zainichi Korean stepsister went through, this Japanese younger sister, was disclosed to The pain of Zainichi Koreans, and then that's where, and she becomes vulnerable towards her pains, and that's where her ethics start to emerge. Um. So I was trying to also writing about the Japanese stepsister along with this zan zainich Korean older sister not only I was trying to I was also trying to show the possibilities of ethics might emerge among Japanese because I believe um in order to yeah. conceive better future in order to combat, the racism is still rampant in Japanese society. Japanese cannot be self-complacent. They have to, they need a self-criticism to see, to imagine the better future in Japan. So in that sense, this um, prostitute hostess figure plays a major role to think about ethics, not only about the pain and trauma, a generational trauma Zainich Koreans went through and going through even today? Thank you for a wonderful question. It was not easy to answer, so I stuttered. Thank I'm you. I'm so
1: grateful. Thing. I'm so grateful.
2: Oh, it's yeah. also a very wonderful question. Um, uh, because I was asked by many people, why do you go back and forth, race or ethnicity? And how, how do you differentiate it? It's a really wonderful question. So, um, so when the writers used the term jinshu, I translated it into race. And when the writer used the term minzoku, I used ethnicity. That was a basic rule, but there are moments you know, it was not accurate to follow through with that rule. Um, for example, There was a propaganda slogan, um, um, like um, "Gozoku Kyowa." That was a slogan practiced, um, advocated in Manchukuo. That means five races living harmoniously. So it's always um, it's custom to use the term "race" for that slogan. But the original, when we look at the Chinese character, they used the character for ethnicity. And so that was a kind of fake dream, you know, false dream, five races living harmoniously harmoniously under the Japanese empire. um, And, and also when I was trying to foreground the racialization processes inherent in um, race um so especially when i was trying to uh, foreground the violence inherent in the racializing processes i really intentionally used the term race so uh, but at the same time and nakajimatsu used the word minzoku a lot when he was crying for the korean race or ethnicity he used the term minzoku and i used ethnicity. So that's how I did. So that's why I'm going back and forth um, between race and ethnicity. But definitely, um, violence is more foregrounded and embedded when I use the term race.
1: Thank you. What does your book teach us about trauma? How are trauma theory and affect theory presented in this study.
2: Thank you so much for asking such a excellent question. Um and it is obvious um my book deals with trauma and generational trauma. And so the reason why I came up with this was um I noticed how the the Korean massacre, you know I talked briefly and uh, play a major role um in like in the history of Zionist Koreans living in Japan, so they talk about it a lot, and their literature talk about it a lot, and but um I was wondering why so it's not that their you know grandparents' generations went through it, but current generation they it's not like they experienced this massacre by Japanese as being Korean but they still talk about it with pain and agony. Why is it? And I started to think about intergenerational trauma. It is an intergenerational trauma and it's real. And and I noticed um, affect theory is extremely useful to analyze it because um, it's not like they went through the genocide, but they are thrown into a certain, a certain affective mood that went through the trauma directly and like how they are attuned to a certain mood and so i was trying to um, complement by employing affect theory to understand the trauma and of course i learned a lot from holocaust um you know studies um in order to develop this uh, trauma to study trauma and i I'm indebted to it, and I try to complement with affect theories, and so, in that sense, affect theory was very useful to understand why Zionist Koreans still talk about this genocide right after that took place right after the Great Kanto earthquake.
1: What is what is your book's contribution to the study of collective memory?
2: So the collective memories, especially the Zainichi Koreans' collective memories, it is really cutting cutting through a whole, um, totalizing memories, um, totalizing memories the Japanese grand narratives because the Zainichi Koreans are there, always there, but they are not, they are silenced. And so such um, collective memories cut through and intervening into the ground narratives of the Japanese history. So um, that's-
1: What does your book teach us about women's experiences during World War II in East Asia?
2: Well, thank you so much for such a wonderful question. It's really cut into the core part of my research. So um, as you can tell, I'm not writing about good women. I'm writing about who are considered to be rather bad women. So, um, and that couldn't represent the empire's ethos, national ethos. So those women's voices and experiences, you know, they fall away from the ground narratives and historiography of Japanese history. Um, but, And they, their voices are silenced. Their experiences are silenced. But these women existed and um so um by what, what i'm doing is um by foregrounding these women i was trying to fragment or challenge the already established um like seishi ground narratives or japanese historiography so, through their experiences and voices and their affect and emotions they went through, um, I'm trying to challenge such big history written by starting with big letter history, by bringing in all these lowercase histories of women's voices and experiences. Um, so, in doing so, I want them to reimagine the Japanese historiographies especially the histories of the empire so this is a very feminist reading of history and text um and i was trying to as a so i was trying to pick up um that were not considered to be important in thinking about japanese history um so that's and also um of and and it's it's really in um so it's so i was trying to suggest it's so limiting to see japanese history or japanese literature or japanese experiences only through the national framework but i was trying to expand into more like intra-asian studies and by looking at not just japan also looking at experiences women's experiences not only in japan but in like man, what, what was called Manchukuo or Shanghai or Korea or Pacific. So this I hope I I hope <laughs> my study can contribute to, to reimagine the Japanese historiography. Thank you for the wonderful question.
1: Can you, can you kindly share your thoughts with us on the relationship between temporality and history? and between temporality and memory?
2: That's a really wonderful question. And um, thank you for asking. So, you know, as the trauma trauma studies, you know, proved us, shown us, you know, the truth, it, truth never appears in a coherent manner. Truth only appears as fragment in an incoherent manner or stuttering or silence. So we have to read such silence or stuttering or incoherency or the fragment that maybe that could be easily dismissed by, how do you say, hardcore positivist method. But I didn't want to ignore those. And also when the truth is revealed, the temporalities are so conflated, uh, memories are conflated, the temporalities are completed So I intentionally paid attention to such um, um, fragmented temporalities. And also the temporalities that doesn't go, move on through um, in a linear manner. It it could be like a circular movement. The temporality could be a circular movement. It could be moving from present to uh, past, the jumping onto from past to future, or bu- jumping from the imagined future to past, skipping presence, um, I have to encounter such um, memories and temporalities. and it makes me think about what is the history, um, who writes the history, and also the one theoretical book that was lingering in my head that I read when I was in undergrad a few decades ago, when I was in Tokyo, Patrick Cotton's History as an Art of Memory. Um, so it always ring- lingered in my head, along with um, trauma theories, although I didn't actively talk about it in my book. So constantly thinking about who wrote, who wrote the history, who can write the history. And so, because of that, I wanted to foreground dismissed part of history. And, and also, so, you know, um, I already might have mentioned, but you know, I, I wanted to embrace artwork that makes us feel very uncomfortable. Cause I think it's very important because, um, art creates raptures in a present moment present temporality and from there it allows us it allows us to rethink the present moment along with the history behind it and then let us reimagine better future so and we can learn a lot from history and also even the each emotion has a history you know so in order to understand the current feeling um Cause anything ongoing, ongoing trauma creating event at this very moment. Everybody has different reactions because everybody has different history. So, um, I think it's very important to think about emotions um, and the history behind it. So the temporality plays important role and especially the temporalities, that is not linear to think about better future. Thank you for a wonderful question. It, may, it made me think again about my project itself. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much. Who, who did you write this book for? Who do you consider the ideal reader and the imagined audience?
2: So, um, who did I write this book for? What is my imagined audience? Um... I didn't think so much about it, but um, any feminist thinkers, um, it can be a feminist literary critic who wants to intervene into the already established canonical reading of history or literature, art or film, Um, anybody who questions and anybody who doesn't wanna stay self-complacent, anybody who wants to keep going um, who wants to do self-criticism for a better future. Uh, not to, um, and and also, because um, I'm trained as a comparative literature scholar, so there's a lot of tra- theoretical training. So in that sense, so this um, training as a comparative literature scholar gave me a lot of tools to communicate with people across disciplines, because when it comes to trauma theories, affect theories, you know, there are, you know, scholars in a different, uh, who are doing in a different theater or a different field, could be a Middle East, but trying to tackle with the same issues. And also from, especially from a feminist perspective to see the history or to see trauma, you know, I want them to read as well so we can communicate, even crossing disciplinary boundaries. And and also um, um when I was writing, I communicated a lot with my own student and a lot of Asians, East Asian students. And at the end of the semester, you know, after taking my class, a lot of my students said, I didn't know um, you know, they honestly, because I'm very critical about the Japanese empire, so they, opens up, they open up to me and tell me and you know, share their feelings, saying, I didn't know why my parents were so angry at Japanese, the Chinese student or me, Korean student. Um, Now I was able to understand and connect what was going on. I was able to understand the history behind their anger, um so it was a rewarding moment to hear that from my students so um and so I want I want yeah the imagined reader will be like a who want to conduct a feminist reading and also who wants to read the Asia understand Asia in intra in a manner of intra-asian studies uh, not just within na- you know na- narrow framework of nation state
1: how do you perceive women's bodies and present them in this book how are liminal bodies and scorned bodies presented in this book can you describe images of women's bodies that you intended to include in the book
2: yes yeah. Thank you for wonderful question. So um the page 48 I have a beautiful figure um it was originally nihonga um, oh. <laughs> drawn, um drawn by Ayana Otake titled prayer inori. So actually this book was going on during the pandemic. So at first I was thinking about um I was working with um, different university press, but during the pandemic, the publishing section, their funding was frozen, so the kind project stopped. And so, before that, public for that publisher, I have to choose, come up with the painting of my own, the image of my own, and I spoke, and I really like this um, nihonga, and I spoke with the artist Ayana Otake and she agreed with it um because she liked my project because I'm interested in gendered women's bodies, sexualized women's bodies, like sex workers and etc. And Ayana Otake also agreed, oh yes, that's what I'm interested in. I'm so excited about it. So this was supposed to be the front cover with this title and from a different publisher. But, you know, because of pandemic, the project stopped. Uh, so I have to go with uh, Ratovich. And but Ratovich already had their own idea about the front cover, so I couldn't use it. Uh, but they suggested to use it within the text. Uh, but this image really captures the ethos of my whole project, as I discussed with Ayana Otake. And, but in the end, you know, after the, you know, when the vac- va- vaccines you know, started to pop up and the pandemic started to be over, the publisher came back and uh, the project started to move forward, but it was already too late. It was after I signed with uh, Ratlidge. So it was um, inserted wi- within the text, but it was supposed to be in the front cover. So thank you for catching up. What does this image mean? So. I wanted to foreground gendered, sexualized workers. And by through their experiences, I wanted to see the world differently in a way we haven't heard, in a way we haven't imagined. So um, that, and this title, Prostitute Hostesses and Actresses at the Age of the Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History, So, no, their experiences do not match with the um, official historiography, rather silenced and folded fall, fall away or ignored, scorned. Um, and so, but you know, at the same time, I came up with this, you know, kind of seductive title at the very end. At first I had a very, very generic title, boring title, like gendering, racing, Japanese Empire. (laughs) So, but I'm glad in the end, I came up with this better title that catches attention of more people. And I wish I could have employed, you know, this image that captures my, the ethos, expresses the ethos of my whole project. But thank you so much for your astute eyes by catching up this, with, with catching up this image.
1: Since this book has been published, have any responses surprised you? How has it been received by different kinds of readers and audiences?
2: Thank you for asking me that question. So, um, so far, so far um, it's been accepted favorably, uh, but the surprise reaction was, because I don't see myself, consider myself historian, rather I'm a literary critic. Trained in theory, um, whose first language is Japanese, and read some Chinese and Koreans. Um, however, like many feminist historians responded to my project so positively, that was an unexpected surprise because I thought, um, like, uh, rigid historians may not like my project. So I didn't expect such positive response from a feminist historians who want who's trying to tackle with the history in a different way so in that sense I you know i work between history and history theory and literature and art forms so i'm constantly referring to history because i'm trying to locate my work in a historical content historical framework what kind of discursive formation was taking place you know so the positive feminist historian's response was a nice surprise. Um, but I know there will be haters as well <laughs> if I'm waiting for more responses.
1: Our dialogue today to a close. Can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about your future projects?
2: So my future project is um, I want to write about a biography Um not only biography, and also I want to focus on certain themes as well about the Japanese feminist thinker, Morisaki Kazue. Um, she, she is Japanese. She was born in Korea, colonial Korea, under Japanese empire and grew up in Korea. And she came back to um, Japan after the World War II And then she lived in a country, countryside um, of Japan living with coal miners. And so she wrote a lot about coal, uh, women coal miners' lives from feminist perspectives and then about their love, like Eros, um, relationships and, but in a way she was creating her own theory it's very hard to reduce her writing into certain theories but rather she was creating theories and i wanna i want to write about her and also growing up in colonial korea she wrote a lot about colonialism and so i want to theorize what she was writing about it and it's very critical about japanese um and um, I want to write about her. I I I finish reading all her work, and I'm studying, and I'm studying where where I even start because she's such a see not an easy female philosopher thinker. Um, but her work really appeals to my heart, so I want to write about Morisaki Kaze as my next project to conceive better future of East Asia.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the time and attention that you devoted to me during the course of our dialogue. I'm so grateful, I'm so happy, and I'm so blessed.
2: Thank you so much, Ari. I really appreciate your time and your patience. Patiently listen to my stuttering (laughs) interview. I really I had yeah, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: As we end today, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books of History Podcast. Today I am signing off having been in dialogue with Nobuko Yamasaki. She is Associate Professor of Japanese and Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Lehigh University. We have been discussing her newly published book, Prostitutes, Hostesses, and Actresses at the Edge of Japanese Empire, Fragmenting History, published by Routledge 2021. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.